I want to welcome you to a special edition of Bring It On. The city of Bloomington is presenting the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration tonight at Burskart Chumley Theater. We are recognizing the 2020 Dr. Martin Luther King Day with two riveting interviews. We'll begin our show with a powerful discussion with Miss Brittany Pagnett, former 2016 City of Bloomington Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day keynote speaker. Enjoy. Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to this extended MLK edition of Bring It On. We're celebrating 11 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And hello, I'm Cornelius Wright. And in the next 90 <coughs> minutes, you'll hear a compelling open letter to the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Also, we'll highlight several of the community events that celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. All in the next 90 minutes here on Bring It On. First up, we just happen to have with us the keynote speaker for tonight's MLK Jr. birthday celebration, Ms. Brittany Packnett, Executive Director for Teach for America in St. Louis, Missouri. She first joined Teach for America as a 2007 Corps member in Washington, D.C. From there, she served as a legislative assistant for her hometown congressman, U.S. Representative William Lacey Clay of Missouri. And following her time on the Hill, Ms. Packnett served as a director on Teach for America's government affairs team and volunteered as the executive director of Dream Girls DMV, a mentoring program for girls and as founding co-chair of the Collective DC, an organization for Teach for America alumni of color in the region. In 2014, Ms. Packnett was appointed to the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. She's been named one of Time Magazine's 12 New Faces of Black Leadership and with DeRay McKeeson awarded the Peter Jennings Award for Civic Leadership. Definitely a mover and shaker. Indeed. We're happy to have here in the studio this evening, prior to her keynote address at 7 p.m., Ms. Packnett, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, I'd like to start off by asking you, what exactly is Teach for America and how was it started? Sure, Teach for America was started actually 25 years ago this year. Um, Our mission is to help create educational equity and excellence in the world. So what we do is we place excellent leaders in high-need classrooms, low-income schools, often that 
serve students of color in inner city and rural areas for at least two years to be exceptional teachers. And then we want to make sure that those folks go on to continue being teachers, but also to being leaders in education. So we have alums that are superintendents that are creating ed tech firms that are helping to change things at the U.S. Department of Education. Because educational equity will take every single tool we have in our arsenal to, to work on it. You said in, in the world. Yep. So you, you have international outreach. We do. So Teach for America um, has 52 regions nationally. And then our sister organization, Teach for All, is in more than a dozen countries and opening even more sites. So we build homegrown teachers uh, to commit to this work um, and to bring, like I said, an excellent education to bear for every single student, regardless of zip code or background. Now, you mentioned the students. How many of your students, how are they done when they leave the program? Sure. So, um, so you know, we take people from all academic backgrounds to be teachers through our program. In St. Louis, we've got 115 core members, another 550 alums of our program who've completed those two years, who, again, are in some uh, form or fashion affecting education. Uh, but the students in our classrooms, uh, they're, they're regular kids in, in regular public and public charter schools. Uh, and on average, the students in our classroom do better with our teachers than they do with teachers from other backgrounds. So last year, on average, for example, uh, in our classrooms in St. Louis, our students made one and a half years of growth as opposed to just one year of growth in a year's time. And we know that when students are low income, they're more likely to be caught behind. So they need those additional months of growth every single year to catch up and to reach their full potential and that's what we're committed to okay so uh, i'm wondering how how are you uh funded who sponsors you that is good a question, question. Huh? that's a great question lots of people have that question and they should right we should always be talking about um how our organizations are resourced and how folks come into our children's lives we um are a combination of public and private funding most of our funding is private so I spend a lot of my time either in classrooms or raising money from incredible supporters in St. Louis who believe in the work that we do and believe in the children that we serve and then we do receive some some funds from the state of Missouri and uh, a small amount of capital from the federal government. Now how do the, uh, the school districts in the areas where you have schools what do they think about the program are they a part of it um, how, how did they just feel about that? Yeah, they're absolutely a part of it. They are um, our most essential partners, right? They are the ones in this work every single day, and so we are there to help support their vision um, for an excellent education in their district. So um, we spend a lot of time with fellow superintendents, principals in the district that are hiring our teachers, um, veteran educators who have a lot to teach us about uh, about how we serve our children the best. Uh, and so we work very, very closely with them. We do not enter a school unless the school district or a charter management organization requests our presence. So we are not just some kind of fly-by-night, savior mentality organization. We recognize that we have to be a part and parcel of the community. We really have to be in the fabric of the community, knowing the families, knowing our, our colleagues in the work. Um, and we have to be invited into this space, right, in order to actually commit in the way that we believe is necessary. You mentioned that your organization works in public and charter schools. Is there a uh, different approach between the, the two schools? 
So the, the, the thing about Teach for America is that not only do we place teachers in those schools, we provide them support training and development throughout the two years of the program. And in particular in St. Louis, we have a heavy emphasis, especially since Ferguson, on what we call culturally responsive pedagogy. So when we think about who our children are and where they come from, they come in with a whole set of beliefs, culture, uh, assets that they bring in with them given who they are. And we want to make sure that those are embraced and affirmed in the class classroom and that a teacher is teaching through that lens so our teachers are never taking a one-size-fits-all uh, approach that they're really considering who a child is and what they bring to the space in order uh, to reach them effectively so that means that that is kind of our consistent uh, teacher training model across all of our teachers and that's relevant for our kids in charter schools and in public schools right um, these are all the same kids a lot of them face the same challenges a lot of them have the same hopes and dreams. A lot of them are coming from the very same zip codes, whether or not they're in a charter school or a public uh, or a, a traditional public school. So, um, you know, we believe that there are just some fundamental things that all teachers have to have, regardless of the environment they're in. So it works in both. It absolutely works in both. You know, in St. Louis, the majority of our teachers are placed in traditional public schools. The vast majority of our teachers and our alumni teachers are in St. Louis public schools, uh, Jennings, Riverview Gardens, uh, those are smaller school districts that are in North St. Louis County that serve a lot of students that live near and around Ferguson. Uh, and then we have a handful of charter schools, one major charter school network, and then the rest kind of smaller boutique charter schools that we place in. But it's all about the need. When a school or a school district comes to us and says, look, we really do have a need for your talent and your teachers, we try to work with them to make it possible. We go where we're needed. Our teachers take the first job that they're offered because this is about um, uh, true service and commitment to equity and excellence in the classroom no matter where you are well that leads to my next question recruitment of teachers mm -hmm. where do you recruit how do you recruit if any of our listeners are in the education uh, field how would they contact you to become a part of the program can, can I add to that real quick? certainly how do you vet those teachers ah uh, that is that is the the real question right so we recruit from every single academic background and career path. We have seen in recent years an increase in what we call second career professionals. So quite frankly, if either one of you wanted to become a teacher, you could come and apply to our program because what you receive through it is what we call alternative certification. So you actually don't have to have studied education. We provide you the training. You go to one of our partner institutions, the University of Missouri-St. Louis, to get additional training and support from them throughout your two years. And during that process, you are... Uh, becoming certified. And so uh, if you are interested in that, you can go to www.teachforamerica, all spelled out, dot O-R-G. Um, and not only can you find out more about the national program, you can find out all about our different, um, our different sites. We have a region in Indianapolis. We have our Chicago region that extends into Gary. Obviously, we have a number of teachers in St. Louis and Kansas City. So we have a, a large presence in the Midwest across the country, quite frankly. Uh, and we really look for people who are exceptional leaders in your career, on your campus, because we believe 
Uh, and we have proven over 25 years that the attributes of a good teacher are the same as the attributes of a good leader, right? You set high goals, you work relentlessly toward them, you invest people in those goals, and you constantly improve your practice as you go along, right? And so those things are flexible between between those two spaces, right? That's true for a leader, that's true for a teacher. And so those are the kinds of people we seek. And during our very uh, intense selective process, selection process, process, uh, we continue to vet people for those particular competencies. So we are certainly looking for people with those leadership skills and critical thinking and a high aptitude for achievement. But we're also looking for people with um, who exhibit a great deal of respect for people from low-income communities, who have experience in the communities where we are working, and who recognize that um, it's fine to teach for a year or two, but it's um, much, much, much more important to dedicate yourself um, uh, in a lifelong pursuit of educational equity and excellence. So we really look for people who are committed for the long haul. And I've got a follow-up question with that. Have you had any students that have come back to become teachers? Yes, I love that question. It is um, it is always a great pleasure to matriculate what we call legacy core members. So those are students who were taught by Teach for America teachers. Actually, we've got one young man who is about to graduate from Mizzou uh, who had a number of Teach for America teachers who not only continue to teach after their two years, but some of them are now on our staff. And so he sent all of us a text message the other day and he said, guess what? I got in. I'm assigned to St. Louis. And so now he'll be able to come back and pay that work forward, right? The things that were given to him and the ways in which he was empowered, he can go and do that for other young men and young women in our city. So we're always excited about that. Well, I tell you, they sent the right person out to advocate for your organization. I'm, I'm, I'm watching Cornelius, so he's ready to sign up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, come on, come one, come on. It's certainly very selective, but I have a distinct feeling that you guys have some of the, the qualities that we're looking for. So, Well, it's interesting. My wife is, really wants to hear you speak this evening. Uh, she's an educator. She's uh, been a preschool teacher for her whole career. Oh, wonderful. She's like, I really want to hear her speak. I really want to hear her speak. So there were certain things I had to ask. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and, and much respect to your wife, you know, I teaching will always, always, always be the hardest job I've had, right? I mean, I work really long hours now. I'm an executive director full time. I'm a protester and an activist in my in my spare time, which kind of doesn't exist, right? My personal time. But uh, at the end of the day, being responsible for human beings, right, and the, their development and their futures, um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, and I have yeah. so much respect for the people who, like your wife, who've been in this for um, such a long time and remain committed. Uh, and I want to make sure that there are people that surround teachers that have their back, right, that there are superintendents that have teachers' backs, that there are members of Congress that have teachers' backs, that there are lawyers and judges and doctors and everyone in the community that really has a teacher's back uh, because they do often very thankless but critically important work for all of us. You uh, actually laid the kind of open door for my next question. Sure. I want to change up a little bit. Uh, you mentioned something about protests and uh, activists. Uh, you're originally from St. Louis. I am. And, of course, we all know, uh, you know, when we talk about St. Louis, we think about the more recent events in St. Louis, Absolutely. Mike Brown, Ferguson, mm -hmm. the protests. Um, Missouri Governor Jay Nixon established the Ferguson Commission to address issues of racial and economic inequality in the St. Louis uh, area following that shooting. Mm -hmm. And the report was due to be released last year. Mm -hmm. Now, 
<clears throat> I remember the DOJ, Department of Ju Justice, uh -huh. report, but I didn't hear too much about the report from that commission. Mm. So can you tell us anything about that? I sure can. And, you know, I, I will say you guys gave me a really kind introduction, but I really like to tell people that at the end of the day, I'm a protester, right? I was raised okay. by two very civically active um uh, people who were engaged in social justice. My father's no longer living, but he was a pastor of a historic African-American congregation in St. Louis. And my mother um, was working in K-12 education and is now in higher education. And they raised myself and my brother to be people who never sit back when we see injustice. And so all of the kinds of things that you read about being appointed to the commission and the president's task force and the Time Magazine honor and all of these kinds of things, those things came about simply because I tried to make the extraordinary choices that my parents raised me to make and stand up, quite frankly, next to and behind um, and, and in ways that were inspired by our students. It was our students and a lot of young people across the region that were the very first ones out there on August 9th when Michael Brown was killed to demand answers, to demand justice, to demand truth. Um, and uh, it was their courage and their bravery that consistently uh, uh, inspired me and kept me coming back every single night. And so I found myself on the Ferguson Commission as someone who um, I hoped to try to bridge kind of the angst and frustration and desires and hopes and dreams of the community that I was standing with every night on the streets of Ferguson um, with this policy space, right, that I have been privileged to work in before and to try to kind of some kind of help translate between those two worlds, right? A lot of times um, when those two worlds aren't talking, we actually don't see any change happen. And so I was, I, I wanted to be on the commission uh, in order to help affect that change. Our report was released in November um, and we really call it the people's report. Our co-chair spent a long time researching um, so-called riot commissions, right, the Kerner Commission and others before it, to make sure that we um, didn't fall into some of the same traps, right, that we really learned the lessons of history. So we wanted to make sure that our report was not ineffectual. We wanted to make sure that it didn't just sit on a shelf and collect dust. And so in a very literal way, there are less than 50 copies actually printed of the report because we literally don't want it to physically sit and get dusty. Um, it is something that can be found online at forwardthroughferguson.org. Uh, and half of the website is the actual report where you will see a number of recommendations in areas ranging from uh, community police relations and municipal governance to education, economic mobility, and other things. But the other half is, uh, um, is the telling of stories. It is the stories and the photos and the very, the very personal reflections from people who came to any number of our 60 fully public meetings to develop this particular report, whose lived experiences were really the inspiration for what we decided to recommend, right? Because what we wanted to say is we're not sitting on some mountaintop looking down at the commoners on high and kind of dictating how life should be, right? We should really be pulling from the community what we desire collectively. And, and we need to relate those things that we are recommending to the difference that they can make in people's everyday lives. So when we talk about 
decreasing the amount of aggressive ticketing that we see in a place like St. Louis County that can lead to a lot of this overzealous policing that we experience. There are people who are telling their stories of being caught in this cycle of debt just for having one speeding ticket or running one stop sign and being caught in a cycle that kept them out of work, their kids out of childcare, and, and mounting debt for months to come, right? We have people that talk about what police violence has meant in their own lives. We have people that talk about what it means to be going to an unaccredited school and the fact that as a region, if we don't come together collectively to fix education, um, then we're going to continue to lose some of our greatest talents. And so, um, I, you know, I would certainly encourage you to explore the website. Again, it's for, forward through ferguson.org and we call it that in particular because we want to see our region go forward. We want to hopefully serve as a model for other regions as they decide to press forward proactively. Um, and we know we can do that, not when we go around the hard stuff, but when we work our way through it. I've got a couple of questions. I, I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s, yeah. and I remember a lot of the things that were going on from a 13, 14-year-old person's mentality. How have the students now, since all of the events, how are they feeling about uh, how things are in Ferguson now? And what's the atmosphere overall for both black whites between the police department and citizens? Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting, and I... I try to commit to always telling the truth, even when it's not pretty. Um, hopefully people will be able to engage in some of that truth tonight. Uh, but, you know, Ferguson really helped to ignite an, an, uh, this current wave of a national movement, right? I'm a student of history. I studied African-American studies at WashU. And um, I, I'm... I'm I recognize that this is another era, right? It's not necessarily a new movement on its own, right? There were folks in in Berkeley, right, in your time and times before all of ours that have been doing this work, and this is a revival, right, a continuation of that work. Um, and in that way, there are some things that are really ring true, right? It's still a very uh, musical movement, right? We, we may not be singing the same songs, but we're singing songs and rhythmical chants and and when um, there was a protest just last night and somebody brought out the drums, right, the African drums, which a lot of times accompany our marches, um, a lot of the strategies are the same, right? So the mid-century civil rights movement used the sit-in, we used the die-in, right? And so you could come upon large public spaces and see hundreds of people laying on the floor to demonstrate um, the the disparities that, that communities of color experience when it comes to police violence. Um, and so a lot of those things are very reminiscent. Um, but as we look forward, you know, there are lots of things happening nationally, obviously. Um, there are uh, organizations as far as California and New York and Florida, um, organizations, organizers, and individuals who are continuing to put in this work and who have seen some real progress and change in their region. We've seen change in St. Louis, too. Uh, in St. Louis City, now Ferguson is a part of St. Louis County, but in St. Louis City, the Board of Alderman has approved um, a civilian review board so that citizens have a bit more control and say so in the happenings of the police department. Um, the, the Ferguson city manager and um, police chief are now different. Uh, we have a few more people of color on the Ferguson city council. So there has been progress, but not enough. Right. And if you walk around Ferguson right now, 
you know, when I when I walk around there, <laughs> it's tough. I, I have I have a some flashbacks sometimes, right? Those are some very difficult nights. The tear gas and the the pepper spray and the M16s. I mean, it was really quite brutal in a lot of ways. Um, and so I get triggered sometimes when I go back there. But in other ways, it kind of is just business as usual. Right. And people, some folks have not living in Ferguson, but some folks who come to this space have forgotten kind of what really happened there. Um, really? And I and I think that, like I said, not people living in Ferguson, folks living okay. in Ferguson are never going to forget it. Um, and and they're never going to let us forget it, which is which is exactly what should be happening. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think people can just kind of be in the space and mill about and forget that that was the summer of our discontent, right? A lot of things really happened right there on that street. And not enough is different um, for those young people who walk home from the bus stop every day, who go over to the corner store to get a candy bar every day, for those grandmothers who worry about their safety, for those moms and dads who are trying to make a way out of no way, right? And um, not enough is different about the economic, educational, or life outcomes of people, not just in Ferguson, but in large swaths of St. Louis City and County, uh, which is why we are in a stage right now at the Ferguson Commission where we, even though we've our charter has ended, we're now in an implementation phase. So a group of seven of us as commissioners are working on what the next steps are going to be, because if all we did was to get together and have some right. meetings and write a report, then that was a waste of everybody's time energy and money and i refuse to have been a part of that yeah Yeah. i i said at the very beginning that's not what i was going to be a part of right and i i continued to protest after i was appointed to the commission and after i was appointed to president the president's task force because i needed to remain close to what was happening and i I needed to remember what the stakes were i couldn't get too comfortable in the meetings and the you know the oval office and those kind of places i needed to remember what was at stake remember what had happened to us remember what quite frankly has continued to happen to us and our children in order to make sure that we were really about our business so you needed to stay on the front lines you know yeah um and there are thousands of people whose names you may never know, right. whose names I may even never know, who did that every single day um, when I was, you know, in Washington or when I was in a commission meeting, right? And those are the people that have kept this thing alive. Mm-hmm. And I just try to make sure that I acknowledge their sacrifice everywhere I go because their sacrifice is real. People lost jobs, people lost homes, people, um, you know, we're all kind of waiting to see what the effects of tear gas are going to be on any of us years down the road. So there was real sacrifice here. Uh, and, it, and it was important for all of us to sustain this work. Did your continued work as a protester and activist cause any conflict with your work on the commission? It didn't. I wouldn't say it caused conflict with the work. It did mean that sometimes myself and, and our my fellow commissioners disagreed, right? And, you know, I wasn't the only protester on the commission, right? One of our co-chairs, Starsky Wilson, was out there on the protest line. Reverend Tracy Blackman out there on the protest line. Rasheen Aldridge, who is the youngest member of the Ferguson Commission, when we started, he was 20 years old. He's still in college. He runs a, a labor organizing organization um, and is himself a person with a physical disability. And he was not only at commission meetings, he was out there on the 
front lines, right? So I wasn't holding that down myself, by myself, for sure. But it did, yeah, it, it did bring us to some points of what I'll say were real honesty, right? And like, how real are we going to get about this thing? Are we going to kind of skirt the truth? Um, are we going to... Um, are we going to pretend like the things that have brought us to this moment didn't really happen? Or are we going to dig in and get to the real so that we can actually get to some real solutions? Uh, and so did that make for some uncomfortable times? Absolutely. But, you know, in the tradition of today and the person that we're celebrating today, discomfort is a, is a necessary and critical catalyst to change. And so um, I'm glad that we embraced that instead of just opting for order, right, that we really sought justice. Um, for our listening audience that may have just tuned in, we are talking with Brittany Packnett, the executive director for the Teach for America in St. Louis. And uh, for those listeners, we have a lot of listeners who may not be able to make your keynote speech sure. this evening. What is the uh, theme of your speech tonight? Sure. Well, I've, you know, I've been asked to talk a bit about um, racial and economic equity and justice. Um, I want to, I want to come from a place of honesty, um, which may not always be comfortable, but hopefully will be, um, inspiring and serve as a call to action and a challenge. Um, my real hope is that through engaging with one another today, through people's various volunteer activities, through coming uh, this evening to hear the speech and to see um, the folks who are presenting tonight, that people will walk away inspired to give just as much on Tuesday as they did today. And so that's what I'm, uh, that's what I constantly push myself toward every year. And that's what I'm hopeful to share uh, with tonight's audience. I want to go back to Ferguson one more time. Sure. But <clears throat> your father was a pastor mm -hmm. and an educator, right? Yes. And over 20 years ago, he had a brutal encounter with the police in St. Louis. He did. Are, are you able to talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, it was, it was 20 years ago. Uh, it was just a few miles from Ferguson in this same portion of North St. Louis County that kind of has very typical issues to Ferguson. And my brother was in the car with him. So my, my father was a, a pretty well-established person in the community um, and drove an imported vehicle. And the officer that pulled him over didn't pull him over for speeding. He didn't pull him over for running a red light or a stop sign. He didn't pull him over for having a taillight out. He pulled him over because he did not believe, no matter what my father showed him to prove otherwise, that this car actually belonged to him. And so uh, my brother at five years old watched as my father was slammed up against the hood of his car uh, because my father, being the uh, bold, audacious preacher that he was, knew his rights <laughs> and wasn't going to put up with just anything. And as he um, uh, thoughtfully but forcefully um, made sure to to really own his dignity in that moment, uh, that particular officer decided that uh, he wasn't having it. And so he slammed my dad up against the hood of the car, my brother screaming and crying in the back seat. Um, it, it takes a while for the whole incident to be over. And I'll never forget, for my father, 
he was pretty clear that this was kind of par for the course. He was angry, right? He marched himself up to that police department and got things taken care of, if you follow me. But um, he knew that this was life as a black man in America. How did that affect your brother? That's what I was going to say. I'll never forget this feeling of a loss of innocence with my brother. Right. And I and, and I experienced some of it myself, even kind of not being there, but being home when they came home distraught. Um, and I was I'm, I'm four and a half years older than my brother. So I knew a, I think I had a better sense in some ways of what inequality felt like. But it, ne- it had never quite been so close to home. Right. We were students of history in my household. So I got it logically and intellectually but I didn't get it emotionally and suddenly it became very real at only five and nine years old and um it has there is there is never a day that goes by where when my brother is out driving around I'm not a little fearful um and that is not in in a free and democratic society that is not a fear or a worry anyone should have to live with right and so that is why we are continuing to be in this movement not just addressing police violence but addressing inequality um and injustice in all of the forms that it takes so that we can live in a place that we all want to see for our children well we got about one minute left uh i just want to ask uh since time magazine uh (laughs) recognize you as one of the 12 new faces of black leadership what's in the future for Brittany packnett uh political office maybe oh boy i don't know i have no idea um i you know i my faith tradition helps me remember that um, life is all about purpose and so i am simply committed to submitting myself to that purpose whatever it is and wherever it takes me and i hope that i can remain honest remain humble and remain making a difference wherever i end up at the top of the hour we informed you that the city of bloomington is presenting the dr martin luther king jr birthday celebration tonight at the buskirk chumley theater the keynote Dr. Melina Abdullah, professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, who will speak on courage and beautiful struggle, honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with our work. The program begins at 7 p.m. A womanist scholar activist, Dr. Abdullah is a recognized expert on race, gender, class, and social movements. She was among the original group of organizers that convened to form Black Lives Matter and continues to serve as a Los Angeles chapter leader, mothering uh, the organization. And uh, she, is also her, she is also co-host and co-producer of the weekly radio bro- program, Beautiful Struggle, which airs on KPFK, part of the Pacifica Radio Network, and hosts and produces the weekly internet radio show, boy, is she busy or not, <laughs> Move the Crowd which airs on radiojustice.org. She joins us now in the studio, Dr. Melina Abdullah. Welcome to this special edition of Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. Well, you have a whirlwind uh, schedule ahead of you, and, and very shortly you'll be talking to uh, uh, hundreds of individuals in our Buskirk Chumley Auditorium. And um, every year this has been a beautiful um, program to put on commemorating the work, the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're so glad that you are part of that this year in 2020. 
Uh, to start things off, because time is of the essence, uh, can you share with us the origins of the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, we understand you're a co-founder, but tell us a little bit about the origins. Sure. So I'm one of the original members, which means I was at the first meeting, but it wasn't my idea. Um, when George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin on July 13, 2013, Los Angeles, like a lot of other th cities, exploded. And we just engaged in what people call intuitive organizing. We flooded the streets. And for three days, we were in the streets part of an ongoing struggle. And on the third day, um, our co-founder Patrice Cullors sent out a text to a bunch of different organizers, and it came to me. Um, and I was in the streets with many of my students and my children, and um, it invited us to gather. And so we gathered that evening and um, began to process what it means to build a movement, not a moment, and that night, that's what we pledged to do, build a movement, not a moment. Now, I, no one could have anticipated that it would become a global movement on the scale that it was. Um, but we knew it was something special even that night. Um, and from that, it flourished and blossomed, and it went cross-country. Uh, with the help, of course, with national media and uh, well-placed interviews with uh, talking heads, if you will, mm -hmm. and then making uh, bold statements and, and having great progress uh, with the movement. I'm just curious about the structure, the organization of Black Lives Matter. Uh, is this sort of nationally, nationally structured where there are chapters of Black Lives uh, Matter? Yeah, so we're a global network um, made up of semi-autonomous chapters who are bound together by a set of guiding principles. So if anybody wants to go to blacklivesmatter.com, you can click on chapters and you'll see the list of official chapters, right? And so in Indiana, we have an official chapter that's emerging in South Bend. Um, many people are familiar with the work that they're doing of following Pete Buttigieg all around the country and lifting the name of Eric Logan lifting the name of Anthony Young, the houseless brother who recently died of exposure. Um, and Eric Logan was murdered by South Bend police. Um, but there's also, we recognize Black Lives Matter is also a movement beyond the network. And so um, there are people who have just gathered themselves under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Um, and sometimes they're in line with our... Um, guiding principles, and sometimes they develop their own um, agendas. And hopefully, and I would imagine that there are weekly conferences uh, with leaders uh, to just, or are there ways to communicate to the rank and file that, okay, how's it going? What support do you need? Um, maybe talk about their initiatives. Yeah, so we are in constant communication. We won't say how we communicate yes, because absolutely. there's people trying to shut us down constantly, but we're in constant communication. Um, I was just in conversation with BLM Louisville, which is another um, chapter that's very close to here, um, about whether or not they could make it up. You know, um, So we all have, like I said, we're semi-autonomous chapters. So in Los Angeles, which is the first chapter, and also the largest chapter in the network, our primary foci are really on 
um, systems of policing. And by systems of policing, I mean, you know, disrupting LAPD, LA County sheriffs, um, but also the district attorney's office, um, also recognizing the role that, you know, the system of mass incarceration plays in carrying out state violence against black people. We look at economic structures. So, you know, why we live in one of the richest cities on earth, but, you know, the county has almost 100,000 houseless folks, most of whom are black. Um, and how do we begin to work towards that? How do we, um, we won a huge victory in June in getting random searches or so-called random searches out of LAUSD schools that target black children. And so that's the kind of work we do in Los Angeles, whereas in D.C., they're focused on healing, what we call healing justice. So they have something called Black Joy Sunday. And every Sunday, black people gather in Malcolm X Park and engage in healing practices. Um, in Louisville, they're paying particular attention to housing. Um, and they're doing phenomenal work, actually, um, buying property and housing black people. Um, and so that's uh, tremendous work that they're doing there. Um, so every chapter has kind of a different thing that they do, but we're all bound together under these guiding principles, and we share ideas. D.C. is really committed to reclaiming MLK, um, and so we borrow some of that as well. Okay. I'm going to defer now to William, but um, just in closing, uh, just a quick reaction to this. You mentioned L.A. as sort of the hub for uh, activities, um, and it, it comes to mind that we had a rising presidential candidate who was aspiring uh, from the from the California area, um, a woman by the name of Kamala uh, uh, Harris, and did she make overtures of support for Black Lives Matter, or are you... Do you have a thought or two on just her candidacy, which she did drop out, but her candidacy in general? So it's a really complicated relationship with Kamala Harris because, of course, as a prosecutor, um, the question is why weren't more police not prosecuted? Why weren't police prosecuted under her watch, right? Um, she did do a great job of prosecuting banks for, you know, their... Um, uh, press of work for the subprime lending practices um, that victimized black homeowners. Um, she also ushered in something called open justice. So tracking who's killed by police is very difficult. Right. And so what she did is set up the statewide database. But, you know, folks have also called her, you know, Katmala, right? That... Um, you know, we need to think about her, and I don't think she did herself any favors by constantly lifting up who she is as a prosecutor, because when we think about prosecutors, they've tended to be anti-black. And I think black voters and black people have become pretty sophisticated in recognizing what Zora Neale Hurston says, that all skin folk and kin folk. And so when she says, you know, I'm a prosecutor. It doesn't land very well for most black voters. Dr. Abdullah, you are uh, recognized as an expert on race, mm -hmm. and, and I'll throw racism in there as well. 
So as a professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University, um, I'm, I'm also going to assume that in your role you have discussions uh, with your students about black and white, about race and racism. So am I on the track so far? No, we never talk about race and... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> of course. So it's... My experience is it's very difficult to have a discussion with with whites about racism because mm-hmm. one thing I have to be careful not to uh, personally attack the person that I'm speaking with and and they're on guard not to feel like they're being personally attacked. But for black folks, racism is personal. Mm-hmm. So in your work, what approach do you take? and discussing race between when you have blacks and whites in the room? Um, so Cal State LA is actually a Hispanic-serving institution, so the majority of our students are actually Latinx. Um, we do have white students. We do have black students. The second largest group is actually Asian students. Um, so it's a very mixed um, group. I teach Pan-African studies, which means um, I get a disproportionate number of black students, which I love. Um, I also am very clear in coming into the classroom that you are sitting in a Pan-African studies class. And especially for the white students who are used to everything being about them, this is not about you. And this is not intended to come from your perspective. This comes from our perspective. And some of this conversation is going to be uncomfortable for you. Guess what? Growing is uncomfortable. And so um, we kind of begin with that space. I talk with them about there being no such thing as objectivity. And so everything that they've been fed is actually someone else's perspective, usually Um, a white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative, capitalist perspective. And so... Did you write that down? (laughs) I I was trying to follow her. I was going to ask her to repeat that. uh, A white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative, capitalist perspective. is the Donald Trump? Donald Trump is the embodiment of that, absolutely. There you go. Yeah. But also, you know, there's kinder, gentler forms of white supremacy. And so I also introduced that in class, that just because you got a black friend at the dinner table doesn't make you not racist. Right. And so we talk, we unpack concepts like liberal white supremacy. What does that look like that you talk in these terms um, of diversity and inclusion, of multiculturalism, um, but you still engage in a system that oppresses my people and gives you unjust privilege. And so, you know, we have all of those kinds of conversations in the classroom. And what I do is I try to approach the classroom as a facilitator of these conversations. So, you know, give them resources to read, give them films to watch, um, engage in conversations, bring up topics. But I also recognize that everyone in the classroom is a contributor to this process. And so when we stumble upon things that are um, challenging, I rely on my students to help me in the process. So every now and then we'll get somebody who's very stubborn um, in kind of 
holding tight to white supremacy. And I basically say I'm not the only one who needs to um, challenge that, and I encourage my students and to And they have. have the nerve to come to your class with that mentality? <laughs> well, you know, I think under this president, um, white supremacy has been emboldened. Right. And, you know, I've had several incidents of not only students coming to my class, but also following me around campus, um, coming to my office. Um, and I think that we see this in terms of the surge in, um, there's been a surge in white supremacist violence and terrorism across the country, especially in urban centers like Los Angeles. That's interesting. You said you had experience with students following you around. What what are they hoping to accomplish other than to intimidate you? Or, or is that I mean, I think they quickly learn I'm not easily intimidated, right? Um I always say I'm I won't say what I say, but I say I'm not scared of nothing. We'll use the word nothing, but I'm not scared, right? Um so, yeah, they try to intimidate me initially, but quickly learn that's not going to work. Um, I think what they're trying to do is shake me from a practice that we um, really live by in Black Lives Matter, which is courageous discipline. So not responding to their... Um, kind of antagonism, not allowing them to shake me, um, uh, responding in a way that's deliberate. And I think that they're trying to catch me off guard. And a lot of times you'll see these white supremacist groups carrying with them, you know, constantly videotaping because they want to catch a clip of you mm -hmm. cussing them out. Because in my mind, I am cussing them out, right? But I just won't say it out loud, Right. Um, and so that's what I think they're trying to do. Here we are on a day where we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a day set aside where we uh, hold up his, his, uh, his principles, his approach to resolving decades, if not centuries, of um, just discrimination. Black Lives Matter, have you adopted some of his principles with regards to nonviolence? Um, and that, that was a major core of his, his personal belief that we can achieve and, and correct racial and social ills. And even, I would venture to say, if he were still here, gender ills uh, through nonviolence. Um, so Black Lives Matter believes in nonviolence, but I think there's been um, a mis-designation um, of Dr. King as a pacifist, not simply someone who practiced pure nonviolence. So the greatest challenge we've had is by those who try to sanitize Dr. King and say that his nonviolent praxis means being polite and civil all the time, mm -hmm. right? They say, oh, Dr. King never would have shut down the freeway. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with Black Lives Matter? Well, what do you think the march on Edmund Pettus Bridge was? You don't think that black traffic, that black traffic, right? Or, or shutting down a bus company. Right, right. And so, you know, we engage in these kind of disruptive mm -hmm. practices, um, which we see as peaceful, 
Um, but we also believe in being courageous and disrupting unjust systems. Mm-hmm. Today, um, it's ironic, today we're talking, and there was also this uh, gun rights in Virginia. In Virginia, and to me, that's, that's if you don't know anything about dog whistling, uh, right. you got to wonder why so, so many people would give their their very lives to bear a weapon. I've talked to people in the past, and people have hinted to me, and just outright told me that uh, they're gearing up for that great racial conflict, whatever. And and the gun rights movement sort of plays into that, and that that's just uh, that's a pillar of, of a political platform. It's it's just you are not going to change the minds of a lot of people, and many of them conservative. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, again, we need to think about the way in which the terrorist-in-chief gives a green light for this to happen. Um, When at the beginning of the day, at the start of the day, he nods and says, um, on King Day, that I will protect your Second Amendment rights with all that I have in me, your gun rights to a gun with all that I have in me, what is he saying, right? We know that these so-called gun rights activists are not, in fact, gun rights activists. They didn't protect the rights of Philando Castile to his registered weapon. They said nothing when police shot him dead, right? What they are is a white supremacist terrorist um, body, and um, their guns are really symbols of white supremacy, not symbols of the Second Amendment or self-defense. And you also heard uh, absolutely nothing from them when Marissa Alexander down in Florida wanted to invoke the Stand Your Ground law. Right. And was denied. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or Corinne Gaines in Maryland, right? Um, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, our commander-in-chief. And uh, I do give respect to the office of president. I, I will vote my preference come November. Speaking of voting my preference in November, uh, is Black Lives Matter matters involved in voter registration? Are you mobilizing individuals nationally to exercise that right? And in lieu of, you, you know, there are going to be efforts to suppress. Yeah. So we're part of a larger body called the Movement for Black Lives, which includes Black Lives Matter, also groups like Dream Defenders, Anti-Police Terror Project, lots of other organizations are involved, Um, BYP 100, right, are all part of this body called Movement for Black Lives. And together we have something called our Electoral Justice Um, project where we are registering people to vote or encouraging folks to register to vote. Um, Some chapters have made that their primary work. So the entire um, uh, Black Lives Matter body out of Michigan is focused almost completely on um, electoral justice. Um, So we are doing work around that, but it's also important that we lift up that um, the current system will blame pe- blame black people for election outcomes but we need to debunk the myth that black people should be blamed black people is one are, are one of the most stable group of voters right. in the entire country the only um, group in my training is in political science right the only group that's more um reliable than black voters in terms of voting and this is without a black candidate 
are Jewish voters. Mm-hmm. They only they vote in higher numbers than Black people, and so we um, absolutely need to push back against voter suppression. Um, because what voter suppression is about is recognizing that fact that black people can determine the course of elections and um, those on the right want to make sure that we don't. Well, uh, very shortly, you'll be talking to the masses of Bloomington. And again, we, we want to thank you for being here uh, sort of as a closing question, an opportunity for you to elaborate uh, just, just real briefly on some things. I read an article today by Bernice, well, uh, uh, highlighting Bernice Keene's speech to some individuals. And there was something she referenced which said, in the Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, which was the last book written by uh, Bernice Keene's father, mm-hmm. which was published in his lifetime, he wrote, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. And we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. In this critical hour and contentious climate, not only in the United States but in the world, I believe that we need to pay attention to these words from my father, said Bernice King. We cannot spiritually, relationally, or globally afford to ignore the injustice and inhumanity and must work fervently to build the beloved community. Your thoughts on that? Um, Well, part of that is actually in what I'm going to talk about tonight, the fierce urgency of now, that, you know, on King Day, we often invoke King, we often honor or celebrate Dr. King, but a real honoring of Dr. King is to actually do the work, right? Um, Something else that he talked about is being engaged in this beautiful struggle, And um, it's really important that we all see ourselves as responsible for um, engaging in the beautiful struggle, for doing the work of justice, um, of ushering in freedom. Well, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Abdullah, we are completely out of time, and we know you need to make your way over to Buskirk uh, Chumley so you can speak to the masses of Bloomington, as Clarence was saying. I think Clarence already extracted a promise out of you to come back uh, later on and do a call-in from California. Anytime. Okay. And on that note, we want to thank Dr. Melina Abdullah, Professor and Chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, who will speak on courage and beautiful struggle, honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with our work. The program starts momentarily at 7 p.m. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB's News Department Director, Cade Young. Tonight's board engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. To the next Monday, January the 27th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, 
a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.